Hello, hello. This week we are going to be doing two episodes and a ramp up to Halloween itself, which is one of the best holidays in the world, and I refuse to be told otherwise. As I stated last week, we're going to be doing two episodes this week. This is the first one, and later on in the week, we're going to do a separate episode about a very salacious trial which occurred in Frankfurt's recent-ish history. However, today we're actually going to talk about a relatively contemporary murder case. And I want to put a few warnings out in the front end of this. This case does deal with some pretty hmm, difficult violent acts, especially aggressions against a woman. And in addition to that, it talks about people who are still probably residing in the area. So I, where I believe I need to, will be changing names. Otherwise, I'm going to just share information as it was publicly reported. It's uh, pretty easy to find, so I'm, I'm not digging up anyone's uh, super difficult history, I hope. If, as you're listening, I'm leaving stuff out or maybe not hitting on things that are important to this case, please contact me and let me know. I'm always happy to provide additional updates to any of these episodes. So without further ado, we're going to get started, but please just be mindful of these warnings as we get into it. While completing research for this episode, I very quickly discovered that there was actually a video on demand through Oxygen Network, which I do not have access to watch in its entirety, unfortunately, about the murder of the woman we're going to talk about today named Peggy King. And the Oxygen Special features faces that I think a lot of us in Frankfurt will recognize. For those of you who do not live here, I recommend giving the name Peggy King and the series title Buried in the Backyard a Google so that you can get a little bit of a sense of the community of Frankfurt as well as the... Mm, maybe emotional and political stage at the time. So most of the events that we've talked about so far on this podcast are in the 1800s or early in the 1900s. That is very intentional. I've kind of stuck to that era as to not run the risk of hitting a foul with anybody in our local community because when you study things like murder or death or despair, there's still a lot of really raw emotions and feelings after the events are completed, for lack of a better word. So I really hope that as you're listening to this, you know that I have acted in, in the best faith possible. And again, I'm, I'm very open to any suggested changes or additional information that is being left out. And by no means is this a complete and total scope of the series of events, but rather an attempt to share the ways in which our contemporary history is shaped not only by historical events of the 1800s, but also by historical events that occurred in the 90s, which it's crazy to say that was 30 years ago now. So, you know, time, time keeps on moving. It's a, a wondrous and crazy thing. So we're going to get into this case. Once again, the woman who we're going to be speaking of today is a librarian named Peggy King, who worked at the Legislative Research Commission known as LRC here in Frankfurt. When I first moved here, I felt like every other person I met worked at LRC or was related to somebody who worked at LRC. It is a massive driver of employment here in Frankfurt. 
But since many of us who are listening right now were probably alive during the 90s, I want to send us back in time by sharing some of the cultural moments that 1992 found us in. The first is that the top song of the year was I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. The movies that everyone was talking about included A League of Their Own, Sister Act, The Bodyguard, Unforgiven, and A Few Good Men. Notable books that came out at this time included The Bridges of Madison County by Robert James Walker and The Dr. Atkins' New Diet Revolution by Robert Atkins. A price of a CD in 1992 was $11.98, and a cost of a daily newspaper was $0.25. Cents. The uh, top baby names were Ashley, Jessica, Amanda, Chris, Topher, Matthew, and Joshua. So this this was really a time <laughs> uh, that I think a lot of us can emotionally relate to. But for the city of Frankfurt, this was a very difficult year. In fact, knowing that they have this oxygen special, one of the things that I did when I first watched the clips that are available online was I looked at the comments. And the very first thing that you come to see is that the legacy of this event lives on in the minds of Frankfurtians today. So, you know, there are folks in here that say stuff like, I was a kid when this happened. I remember this like it was yesterday. Uh, Then they talk about the folk dancing community and the impact that this had and about how growing up here, they remember hearing this story. So it is still something that is in everyone's minds here, at least everyone who lived here at the time. So without further ado, we're going to start talking about it. So... Peggy King was a librarian at the Legislative Research Commission, and people started realizing something was off very quickly after her disappearance. King was a well-respected member of the community. She was well-known, well-liked, and she had a, a large group of friends through the folk dancing community. And if you've never heard of folk dancing before, this includes dance styles like contra dance, or more traditional like line dancing or call out dancing. It's typically where there's someone at the front of the room who's calling out specific dance moves or specific types of dances that then the group performs um, continuously until a new move is called out. So um, Peggy King was very actively involved in this community and at the time, in February of 1992, she actually held a leadership position in the country music dance club or the folk dancing community. So on February 4th, 1992, she attended a meeting. She was the treasurer of the club and she carried the money that the club received each night through attendance in a cigar box, which she kept on her. After the meeting, she had a lengthy conversation with King and Sally Wiley, who were friends of hers, and then she left to return home. However, the next day on February 5th, William Wiley heard that she had not shown up at her job, which was very much unlike her. So he went over to her house to investigate and see if she was okay or if she was feeling sick. The house at the time was locked, but thankfully he was able to obtain a key. Upon entering the home, he discovered that all of the lights were on, including the front porch light. Her bed hadn't been slept in, it was still made, and there were two bowls sitting on the kitchen table. The bowls were described as having a smooth brownish residue at the bottom, so some people speculated if it was ice cream or, um, you know, some other kind of food substance that was sitting at the bottom of the bowl, and they did find partially full container of ice cream in the freezer. However, King's car, a 1986 Toyota Tercel, was missing. So Wiley notified Peggy King's son, who lived in Lexington, but nothing else really happened that day. You know, her car wasn't there, so it was a safe assumption that she had stepped out. On February 6th, though, a day later, a missing persons report was filed by Sally Wiley, who 
went to the Frankfurt Police Department and was able to get Detective Russell Givens to go to King's home with her. Mrs. Wiley, Sally, also noticed the bowls on the kitchen table. They had not been cleaned up or moved. And she also remarked that King's dancing shoes and the black satchel were found on the stairs. A white sweater that King had worn the night of the dance club on February 4th, so two days prior, was found folded and put away in a drawer in her bedroom. So nothing comes of this, and the police are starting to put out information regarding a desire to locate King's automobile. They think that if they're able to find her car, they might find her, and and at this point, no one's necessarily assuming that anything a foul has happened to her, but rather that she you know, may have left to go somewhere. So they continue to hope for answers. They actually start distributing flyers uh, locally. And on February 10th, they actually find her Toyota Tercel parked on East 3rd Street in Frankfurt. They immediately take the car and they do a forensic investigation of the vehicle and they found interior blood stains on the driver's side seat, the running board, and the left side of the console. They also found some hair fibers inside the vehicle, which they removed. They, again, much like last, or no, two weeks ago, I guess, where we talked about the early days of forensic evidence, they uh, don't have the same access to DNA, so the degree to which testing can be done on the blood and the fibers is relatively simple compared to what we might do these days. But they did determine that the blood stains in the vehicle were the same type of blood that King had or was documented having. A forensic examination of one of the hair fragments revealed too that the hair was not the same type as King's hair and that instead it was believed to belong to someone of African descent. And they um, kept kind of trying to dig into what this piece of evidence might mean. And they actually were kind of stymied. They didn't have a body. They knew that at this point, after finding blood in the vehicle, that there was something that had probably happened to King. But what and where was she? Why hadn't she shown up? So we're going to turn now to a newspaper article published in the Lexington Herald-Leader on February 12th. So this is two days after the vehicle was discovered. And we're going to kind of jump around a little bit, but um, Peggy King's car was parked in the 300 block of East 3rd Street in Frankfurt, five blocks from South Presbyterian Church, said Steve Clark, public information officer. He said that the police car found her vehicle around 4.15 p.m., but did not know for how long it was parked there. King, age 50, was last seen leaving the church about 10.15 p.m. February 4th after a folk dance meeting. Clark said there was no damage or other sign of struggle apparent on the dark blue four-door 1984 Toyota Tercel. He said the keys were not in the car. Police said King had received a prank phone call a few weeks ago, but they would not comment on what the caller said or whether the call was, sorry about that, linked to her disappearance. Clark said the police do not know whether foul play is involved in King's case, but the circumstances surrounding her disappearance are suspicious. Scott Varland, a legislative analyst for the commission, said that he and King's other co-workers and friends can only wait and hope. They also talk about how unusual it was for her to be missing for this long and how she was the kind of person who would drive an old car She never bought flashy clothes or did anything which would leave people to believe that she was rich. However, the newspaper also reports that she had recently received a large inheritance from the sale of a family farm in Mason, Ohio, about two years ago. He did say, too, that it was unusual for King to miss any appointments or to go away anywhere without telling family or friends, and they do provide a physical description that she was five foot five inches, 130 pounds, with brown shoulder length hair. So this was published on February 12th, 1992. About a day after this article where they're seeking information about King, 
they actually end up finding her body, which provides a significant amount of answers. So on February 14th, 1992, uh, King's body was found. This report comes directly from the State Journal, and it was published several days after the body was found as the preliminary autopsy reports were starting to come back. So we're gonna read it in its entirety. Preliminary autopsy reports show Legislative Research Commission librarian Peggy King suffered several blows to the head before being killed by a single shot to the neck, officials said today. King's body was found at 10.38 a.m. Thursday by city street workers taking a break at the driveway of Floyd Parish on Glens Creek Road. King, 50, still wore the navy blue outfit she had on when she was last seen, leaving the South Frankfurt Presbyterian Church on February 4th. Franklin County Coroner Mike Carrad said tests were now being performed to determine how long ago King died. He declined to elaborate on what might have been used to inflict the blows, but noted there were no fractures. Harrod said that there were no evidence of any other injuries. Frankfurt Police spokesman Steve Clark, who we mentioned before, said police believe the body had laid in the roadside ditch several days prior to being found. State forensic anthropologist David Wolf who was at the scene and assisted with the autopsy performed by Dr. John Hunsacker, said preliminary evidence indicated King had been placed at the site shortly after her disappearance. I saw nothing to indicate that she was put there the day before yesterday, he said this morning. Parrish, who arrived home for lunch Thursday afternoon, only to find his gravel driveway blocked by yellow police tape, said he hadn't seen the body when he left work that morning. It looks like I would have noticed it, said Parrish, I would be surprised if it had been there all that time. Parrish said a friend picked up trash in the vicinity of where the body was found earlier this week, possibly Tuesday, and did not notice anything suspicious. Police said King's body was rolled down to a small roadside embankment and into a brush-covered ditch. The body, located approximately 25 feet from the driveway entrance, was hidden by heavy brush and was not visible from the road. Parrish's driveway is located on an S-curve of Glens Creek Road. The site is visible from the nearby east-west connector. Parrish said the road is seldom used and area residents have problems with illegal dumpers. Scattered pieces of furniture, wood, and trash dot the vicinity where the body was found. Clark said King's body was identified at the University of Kentucky through dental records late Thursday night. Police confirmed they are conducting interviews with several possible suspects in the case. Clark said he could not comment on whether police searched any businesses or residences after the body was found, and he also declined to comment on any evidence found in King's car or her house. King's car was found found abandoned in the 300 block of East 3rd Street Monday afternoon. It's a policy of the Frankfurt Police Department that we don't release specifics of evidence, Clark said. Very shortly after this discovery, there is a public memorial held for Peggy King. The article, Friends Recall King's Love of Laughter and Arts, was published in the Lexington Herald-Leader on the 18th of February that same year. Discusses how friends remembered her laughter, her smile, her infectious happiness, and they tried to forget the pain. To quote, her life was a beautiful tapestry, a patchwork quilt of beautiful relationships, and I don't think any one of us was ever aware of how many people she was connected to in some special way said Sally Wiley, King's best friend. King, 50, a librarian with the Legislative Research Commission, had been missing for nine days before her body was found Thursday along a secluded driveway in Frankfurt. She had been shot and had blunt force injuries to her head. Police think the body had lain there for more than a week. I don't know what happens to a person to make him do evil, but a fellow who does wrong will have to learn how much time he'll get for doing wrong, said Clarence Williams, who worked in the same building as King. While anger and frustration were evident at the memorial, mourners tried to forget the circumstances of King's death and focus on the uplifting memories. They reminisced about her love of the land, the way she planted strawberries, picked apples, and pulled weeds. They laughed about her fear of snakes and the collection of pig memorabilia she displayed in her house. King's love of the arts was evident in stories about her painting and hammering on stage sets, baking for the church choir, and persuading friends to try folk dancing. Besides the arts, King loved her family, friends say. They hope her two sons, Stacy, 22, and Troy, 20, 
can remember the cheerful nature of their mother. King's husband Leland died in 1979. Unfortunately, even with this outpouring of recognition and memorial support, there was no information publicly available about any suspects who might have been responsible for committing this heinous crime. So the newspapers step in and they start to do requests for information from the police, including promotion of a $5,000 reward for any information relating to the vehicle, potential relocation of the vehicle, the location of the body, truly anything possibly available that might help lead to an arrest. While the potential for the reward does not lead to any information of which we are publicly aware, we do know that by late April of that same year, three people are charged in the murder of Peggy King. These people uh, are Carlos L. Thurman, 21, of Frankfurt, Desmond G. Bush, 19, of Frankfurt, and Sean D. Hunter, 25. All three were already in jail on unrelated charges at this time. Police said Thurman was the former boyfriend of a woman who lived with King for a short time. The woman, Catherine Stotzberg, moved in with King, the friend of the woman's mother, for a short time after her breakup with Thurman. Morris Burton, the Franklin County Commonwealth's attorney, said Bush and Hunter apparently did not know King. Thurman escaped Saturday from the Lee Adjustment Center, where he was being held of numerous charges, including criminal mischief, trafficking in cocaine, and complicity to commit burglary. He was recaptured on Sunday and charged with escape. He was being held Wednesday in the Montgomery County Jail. Bush was awaiting sentencing in the Franklin County Jail after pleading guilty to complicity to commit burglary and possession of crack cocaine. Hunter was serving a five-year sentence for cocaine trafficking. Frankfurt police officer Steve Clark said no other details would be released on the arrest to ensure a fair trial. For over a year, investigators have worked diligently on this case. The King's case has always been our top priority. Obviously, it pleases us to make this announcement. All three of these men actually received verdicts related to the death of Peggy King. And a lot of the information I'm about to share with you all comes through the public record of the courts regarding the cases and the trials surrounding these convictions. And what I want to say up front is I know we've kind of talked a lot about legal procedure in this podcast, way more than I anticipated, but it is really truly common for any major verdict to go through a series of appellate actions or appeals And so the most readily available information that is the most useful to me sharing the story with you comes actually from appellate verdicts. So this is from a May 21st, 1998 appellate verdict of Carlos Lee Thurman versus the Commonwealth of Kentucky regarding his earlier conviction for murder. And it it gives some other background information on the other two gentlemen as well. So uh, in a separate trial, Damond Bush was convicted of second-degree manslaughter, first-degree robbery and kidnapping, and was sentenced to 50 years in prison. Sean Hunter also pled guilty to second-degree manslaughter and was sentenced to 10 years. Following a trial by jury in Franklin County Circuit Court, Thurman, the gentleman who is discussed in this case, was convicted of felony theft by unlawful taking, first-degree unlawful imprisonment, and murder. He was sentenced to serve 109 years in custody at the Department of Corrections. He appeals to this court as a matter of right. The appeal opens with discussion about the circumstances for finding evidence on the case. So on February 13th, 1992, we're going back in time, This was the day that Peggy King's body was found by Robert Harlow, who was an employee of the Frankfurt Street Department and located her body in a culvert off Glens Creek Road. A subsequent autopsy revealed three blunt force injuries to her head and a 22 caliber bullet in her neck. Uh, Unfortunately, her face and neck had been extremely 
uh, mutilated and disfigured due to rodent activity in the area. So they were unable to find an entrance wound at that time. However, uh, judging on the location of the bullet and the knowledge of the way in which animals do prey upon remains, they were able to kind of discern where the attack wounds would have been. And even though earlier reports said that there were not uh, fractures to her body, there in fact were fractures from the bullet, which fractured her C2 vertebra and tore through her spinal cord, ultimately causing her death. So the motive for this really hinges upon the relationship between King and Catherine Stossberg, who was living with King earlier in 1992 and even prior in 1991 as the result of Stossberg attempting to break off a romantic relationship with Thurman. And uh, in January of 1992, she actually enrolled at Eastern Kentucky and only stayed a few weeks um, because according to Thurman that, uh, Stossberg was spending too much time in her dormitory and not enough with them, him. And so she then moved in with her aunt in Lexington, but, uh, Thurman continued to telephone her aunt's house, left notes in her aunt's mailbox and loitered near her aunt's residence. And because of these problems, Peggy King agreed to let Stossberg move into her home in Frankfurt and uh, Stossberg moved in King's home on January 26, 1992. However, she spent the same night with Thurman at his sister's residence in Prince Hall Village apartment complex here in Frankfurt off East Main. And during that evening, appellant uh, Thurman displayed to Stossberg a dark, medium-sized revolver. When Stossberg returned to King's home on January 27th, she told King that she needed to leave Frankfurt and get away from Thurman and so she made arrangements to leave Frankfurt and go to Huntington, West Virginia. And King helped facilitate this and actually put Stossberg on a bus in order to help her get away from Thurman, who they believed to be dangerous. On February 2nd, Stossberg actually called Thurman and informed him that she didn't intend to return and that she was never coming back to Frankfurt and refused to give him her address, which is frankly a good move, it sounds like, on her part. So um, then we're going to fast forward to King going missing on February 4th, so just a few days after, and the ultimate discovery of her body on February 13th. So using that information, they were sort of able to piece together some other types of um, potentially related ideas and theories. So uh, between 11 and 10, excuse me, 11 and midnight, on the night of February 6th through the 7th, um, 1992, and again between midnight and 1 a.m. on the night of February 12th and 13th, the maintenance manager at Prince Hall Village saw Thurman and Damond Bush emerge from the woods behind the apartment complex and climb over a six-foot-high chain-link fence separating the wood from the complex and proceed toward the apartments. The manager described the area from which Thurman and Bush emerged as heavily wooded and not used for pedestrian traffic. On February 20th, 1992, a tree trimmer found Peggy King's purse in the same wooded area. Here's where things tend to get interesting. Uh, Essie Hunter, who is a sister of one of the co-defendants in the case, Sean Hunter, testified that Thurman told her that sometime prior to the discovery of King's body, or excuse me, told Thurman told Essie Hunter, sister of Sean Hunter, prior to the discovery of King's body, that on the night of February 4th, Thurman had asked his brother to give him a ride to King's home, and that he and King had spoken with each other and had shared a bowl of ice cream. And then Thurman asked King if he could use her phone to call for a ride home, and King instead offered to give him a ride, and then they left her house together. Thurman told her to drive him to Glens Creek Road, and Hunter, S.E. Hunter, claimed that Thurman did not tell her what happened after that, and there was no evidence of any other witness who saw both Thurman and Damon Bush driving King's blue Toyota Tercel in South Frankfurt. So another witness did testify that she overheard an argument between Thurman and Michelle Tracy 
in which Thurman stated, and I quote, you will do what I tell you to do or I'll do to you what I did to Peggy, but they'll never find you. Another witness testified that they were present during this conversation between Thurman and Bush, in which Bush jokingly referred to going fishing for a gun, but it would never be found. And then Thurman boasted that there was a bullet hole in the head near the back of the neck and that they didn't that they didn't find. So yet another witness also testified that they that Thurman told him that Bush killed King with a 22 caliber pistol, which Thurman obtained from his great uncle in Richmond, Kentucky. Finally, another witness testified that he was present during a conversation with Thurman and Bush in which Thurman stated he had capped, uh, which is a slang term for shot, King. In a February 20th interview with Detective Jack Hazelwood, Thurman stated that Damon Bush had hidden Peggy's purse in the woods behind Prince Hall Village. The purse was found there later that same day. In an April 3rd interview with Hazelwood, Thurman stated that Damon Bush told him that he went to King's house on the night she was killed and ate a bowl of ice cream. However, in that same conversation, the appellant, Thurman, admitted that Bush did not know King. He also stated that he had read in the newspaper that the killer went to the victim's home, although that information at that time had not been publicly reported to the press. So without any hard and fast evidence to the forensic level of procedures. I said that in such a weird way. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, so this case, like some of the other cases we've looked at, lacks hard and, hard and verifiable forensic evidence that points to a scientific correlation between killer and killed. Without that, we're left with a lot of hearsay, a lot of witness testimony, and a lot of on this day, he said this and she said that. And unfortunately, too, the type of firearm or um, I guess bullet that was utilized to kill King is a relatively common bullet that is capable of being fired from a multitude of weapons. So it makes truly knowing the potential weapon or the potential killer incredibly difficult. And this was the kind of underpinning of the appellate case, which was that, you know, we don't really know who did it. There's, this is not, this is all circumstantial. None of this is, is real quote unquote evidence. And Carlos Thurman, he was actually denied a rehearing of his trial on October 15th, 1998, meaning that the previous conviction stood, that he was still found guilty and uh, was going to be receiving time for that murder. We're going to deviate from this testimony and trial just for a moment because I think it's important to acknowledge the role of evidence in this case, just like the other cases we've looked at. And the best way that I have found this case articulated is sort of from an unexpected source. Um, there is an, an online article in Guernica published by the daughter of the investigative um, detective, couldn't think of that term, who did the investigation into Peggy King's murder named Jack Hazelwood. And his daughter wrote a very emotionally moving piece about her father and the relationship to Appalachia and Kentucky and about her father's conviction later uh, of marijuana growing and the piece is called there is nowhere in Kentucky far enough away from Appalachia and this is a quote from about halfway through the article as an adult I once asked my father how he got a conviction based on circumstantial evidence he said it was important to tell the jury a story they could believe you must set up a timeline he said a reasonable sequence of events leading to the murder and its aftermath you need to present evidence to corroborate each step of the story. An ice cream bowl here, an ice cream bowl there. A lawyer friend confirmed this. The courts don't care about timeline, only the law is broken. But the jury does. They are the human element. So on the last night anyone saw Peggy King alive, she ate a bowl of ice cream in her own house with someone who was likely her killer before she had a chance to clean the bowls. 
No one but her killer and the cops could have known this, and Thurman admitted that he knew someone had eaten a bowl of ice cream at King's house before she died. What did my father say to Thurman to get him to confess with such carelessness? He used to brag. The Supreme Court says I can lie to you on tape if it will get you to confess. I picture him pacing the dull white rooms of that police station, pausing to lean forward so he could lie, confuse, belittle, and berate Thurman, his words coming faster and meaner, asking question after question until he got what he was looking for. I think this article is a very emotional piece about the relationship of family, but at a deeper and relevant to us in this moment level, it points to the continued relationship between law enforcement trying to get a conviction and the relative nature of guilt. And I'm by no means saying that Thurman is not guilty of this. I think um, he's, he's entered multiple appeals at this point, including one in 2001 that was also denied due to the fact that he believed, Thurman believed that his lawyer at the time should have acted in better faith and had one of the witnesses removed from the witness list as credible. But ultimately, the uh, Court of Appeals decided that the person was more or less removed as a valuable witness because the court had set him up as a regular drug user who was actively high at the time of his purported statements. So suffice it to say, you know, their ultimate hand down after that appeal and their statement after the appeal was denied was that there was an overwhelming amount of circumstantial and verbal evidence that points to Thurman's role in this case and that the appeals lodged against the Supreme Court ultimately don't lend themselves to anything that would overturn that degree of guilt. Now, you're probably sitting here wondering what happened to the other two gentlemen who were convicted in this case. And here's where I have interesting news. So, um, as of June 22nd, 2018, Damon Bush actually appealed his case and uh, the attorneys appearing for the case were uh, Bradley W. Fox out of Covington, who was uh, the brief for the appellant. So he was on Damon's side and Andy Bashir, who is a name I think many of us recognize, uh, he obviously represented the state of Kentucky. So the uh, Damon Bush appeals the Franklin Circuit Court's April 7th, 2016 order denying his motion for a post-conviction DNA testing and his motion for relief under the Kentucky Rules of Civil Procedure 60.20 and we affirm this ruling. So essentially what he was saying is that he believes uh, that he should have been issued the right to uh, DNA testing on this case in order to prove that he was not involved or, you know, at least not linked in the way that it is suggested. And this goes through to, like, some of the um, laws related to similar appeals and testings in other arenas, uh, but it also provides us some more information. So uh, Bush also filed a motion to modify his judgment in 2010, arguing that his conduct fell within the kidnapping exemption, and that motion was denied. No appeal was taken. In August of 2014, Bush filed a motion to, unaccompanied by an affidavit for post-conviction DNA testing. And um, this was denied, and then they also, uh, let's see, then in a detail order entered on April 7th, 2016, the request for a new trial and for post-conviction DNA testing was denied once again. He appealed, and then he actually was paroled in November of 2014. So um, I know that was a lot of confusing dates, but suffice it to say, at the time of this appeal in 2018, he was actually currently in, um, in parole which is maybe not even say that he was currently paroled is probably better. So um, 
DNA testing is obviously something incredibly relevant to this case as well as many other cases. And as I'm sure many of you listening know, there's now new pushes for DNA evidence in previous cases in order to find convictions or to connect killers. This has been done in a lot of serial killer cases to a high degree of publicity. But in this case, specifically when Bush is requesting this DNA analysis to occur, specifically because the hair found in King's vehicle is believed to be related to his through um, a physical comparison. So um, here we go. We're going to read this KRS uh, appellate statement, and hopefully it is not horribly confusing, but we'll talk it through. So this finds that um, KRS 422-285 authorizes a post-conviction DNA testing of evidence provided that all statutory requisites are met. Bush wants DNA testing of the hair found in King's vehicle. He claims if DNA proves that the hair is not his, it would show that he may have not been involved as the hair does not match him, thus no DNA links him to the crime scene. Bush further argues it is exculpatory evidence in that it provides him the opportunity to show the jury that he is not physically linked to the scene of the crime as the hair sample is not his and obviously belongs to someone else. We have examined the record closely, we the court have examined the record closely and carefully considered the arguments. We find that Bush is not entitled to DNA testing under KRS 422-285. KRS 422-285 sets out a multi-step analysis requiring a circuit court to determine the availability of relief by assessing the petition, the supplements and response, the petitioner, and the evidence to confirm that each meets the statute's requirements. Only after addressing these three preliminary steps can the circuit court reach the more substantive and ultimate question. Is there a reasonable probability that the DNA evidence the petitioner seeks would have made a difference had it been available at or before the trial? A petition is authorized by the statute to procure only one type of post-conviction forensic testing. Of course, that is testing and evidence for DNA. The petition must be accompanied by a supporting affidavit containing sufficient factual averments to support the request. Bush failed to include a supporting affidavit or the averments necessary to authorize the circuit court to proceed. The misstep alone is grounds to deny his position. So essentially what they're saying is uh, the appropriate documentation to go along with this request was not submitted or not submitted properly, and therefore... Uh, there's, there's no, the court does not believe there's any reason to move forward. Later on, they also say that the Commonwealth's response to this request also implies that the DNA requested, i.e. the hair, no longer exists or is no longer in possession of the Commonwealth, and Bush has failed to demonstrate otherwise, and accordingly, Bush has not satisfied this criteria and therefore has not established his right to DNA testing of the hair. But don't worry, the court does try and be fair. Um, So they do say that the request for DNA testing must convince the trial judge that either a reasonable probability exists that the petitioner would not have been prosecuted or convicted if exculpatory results are obtained, or a reasonable reasonable probability exists that either the petitioner's verdict or sentence would have been more favorable should the DNA testing come back. Uh, And this goes on, but they're not convinced ultimately that Bush's verdict or sentence would have been more favorable had the DNA testing of the hair occurred or that testing would produce exculpatory evidence. The hair sample was determined to be that of an African-American and all three defendants were African-American. Proving the hair did not come from Bush would neither prove nor disprove that he was involved in the crime. In any event, the circuit court retains broad discretion not to allow DNA testing, even if one of the latter provisions has been satisfied. The circuit court in this case saw fit not to order DNA testing, and we decline to disturb the decision as it indicates no abuse of discretion. And this continues on in such manner. So um, in sum, they affirm the circuit court's April 7th, 2016 order, And again, at this time, Bush was in parole. 
as was the other gentleman accused in this case. So at this time of recording, only one man, Thurman, is currently still in prison as the result of his sentencing, and the other two have been released pending parole. Now, this is not really the note I want to end on as, you know, I feel like with so many of the things we've talked about, there's some really difficult underlying thematic things. Uh, First and foremost, we have the fact that all three of the gentlemen accused in this case are black or men of color, which knowing this along with the statements that were made by the investigating detective about lying and, and using that lie in order to receive a admission of guilt. It's so difficult to say with 100% certainty in this contemporary moment whether or not these men were treated in good faith and the degree to which they have appealed the courts on various counts again draw that into question and I'm, I'm not saying one way or the other but it is worth it for us to continue to observe and discuss the relevant actions of our legal system and how those actions affect those from a continually mistreated populace or population group. And I think that's a really valuable conversation to have. And if it comes back that everything is done fairly and above board, then that's fantastic. Like that's what we want to happen. However, um, you know, as, as Peggy King was a white woman and these are three black men and there was a very predominant narrative of violence, especially among these this group of people uh, who had previous convictions for trafficking and possession. It's not an unfair conclusion to make that maybe some things were not done above board or that these men were maybe not treated in ways in which they would have been. Now, granted, we do have some really solid verbal evidence that does run against this, it's, you know, seems like there's hearsay evidence that these men outright admitted that they did kill Peggy King. And in that instance, we can't really deny guilt, right? I mean, that does seem pretty straightforward. However, again, I call into question, just kind of as a um, personal aside, as we think about the reasons and the historical moment, I just invite this question. I invite the consideration of this question. Additionally, I also am not wanting to end on this kind of legal note of these verdicts and these appeals. And instead, I would like to end on a note related to Peggy King, because regardless of who is at fault and who is guilty, What is most critical for all of us to keep at the center of this narrative is the loss of this woman's life. And by all accounts, in an incredibly unfair and heinous act, regardless of who did it. She was not someone who you would assume would be the victim of murder, especially as she was, by all accounts, like a very active and responsible member of her community who was involved in the art scene as well as someone who had a genuine affection for other people and and tried to do right by them and her death was a shock I mean it, it just was it was a shock for the community and it it's just it's painful to think about um especially as evidence points to the fact that she was abducted or kidnapped prior to her murder um So it's not a surprise that this does become a way for the community to rally around this person. And what's done in order to honor her and her history and and legacy in Frankfurt is the uh, honor is bestowed upon her posthumously to have the uh, library at LRC renamed. So it is now the Peggy King Legislative Reference Library. And this is done in um, 1995. The, the, the library, which then, 95, is new, 
is in the basement of the Capitol Annex and will be open to the public as well as legislature legislators. It offers online services in over 100 periodicals. And again, that's at uh, the time. That's in 1995. So today it has grown just a little bit. If one is to go to the legislative.ky.gov website of the library, here is what you will find. It's open to the public Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. It holds reference material related to newspapers, statutes and regulations, legislation, uh, committee minutes and folders, committee meeting tapes, videotapes of General Assembly sessions from 1992 to date, and other general reference material. And it is described as thus, the Legislative Library is located in room 27 of the Capitol Annex. The Legislative Library holdings and services support the research activities and ongoing committee work of LRC staff, and many library services are available to the public. But the note that I want to end on is this. On the right-hand side of the page, here is what we have. Peggy Ayers King, 1942-1992. to Peggy King served as Legislative Research Commission Librarian from 1976 to 1992. She was an exceptional person whose intelligence, kindness, shyness, and laughter drew people to her. She encouraged and inspired colleagues, legislatures, and friends alike. Peggy deeply loved nature and nature's God and was a vital member of her community. Of Peggy's many gifts, perhaps her greatest was to value all who came with her kin. Ancient religion and modern science agree we are here to give praise. John Updike. Mm-hmm.